Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than the generals do. No, Donald. You don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. We tend to know our presidential candidate's faith. John F. Kennedy's Catholicism, or the born-again Christianity of George W. Bush, or the Mormonism of Mitt Romney. The strange thing about this election, though, is that we don't really talk that much about the spirituality of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, and we don't really know that much about it, as it turns out. A recent Pew Research poll found that 43% of Americans don't think Hillary Clinton is religious at all. It's not much better for Donald Trump. Only 47% of Republicans say he's religious. But are those views accurate? We wanted to find out by talking to people who really know both of these candidates. First, though, why does the role of religion feel different in this campaign? Joining me now to talk about that is Jonathan Martin. He's a national political reporter at The Times. I think because the culture wars in this election have turned much more on issues of identity, ethnicity. You know, in the past, you would have, for example, abortion or gay rights litigated at length in a presidential race. And it, those would be galvanizing issues for the two parties. And it's not to say that, that those two issues are completely removed from the conversation. Of course, they're not. It's just that this election is much more driven around issues like immigration, the threat of terrorism, and even just you know race itself. And so those issues are less driven by faith than they are matters of individual views and conscience. It seems like there's something else in play, which is that neither candidate brings up faith, their own faith, yes. with any frequency. It's a great point. Hillary does at times, and she refers to her Methodist background and her sort of John Wesley-infused you know, habits of trying to, I think her saying is, um, do the most good you can as often as you can. I'm, I'm probably getting that wrong. I'm, I'm not you, need to, you need to bone up on your Methodism? That sounds right. Do all the good you can for all the people you can in all the ways you can as long as ever you can. She mentions it, but it's not central to her her campaign pitch. I mean, her campaign pitch is basically trying to completely define and destroy Donald Trump and you know render him unacceptable as a, as a potential commander in chief. And so it's less about her than it is about trying to stop him. And for his part, he's a fairly secular individual, as you know, Michael, from covering him. And he's not comfortable talking about many personal matters, including faith. He's an irregular churchgoer, and it's just not something that has been a sort of animating force 
in his life, at least in any public way or in any way that he's demonstrated. Which leads us to the inevitable question, which is, how is it he defeated a field of Republican primary challengers <laughs> to whom, for whom faith was so central to their identity? So we're talking Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson. These people spoke confidently, frequently, yeah. openly about their faith and how important faith was to the entire country and their vision of governing it. Well, that speaks to the priorities of the GOP primary electorate. If you look at the question in the exit polls that were asked during the primary of uh, the, for those who attended church once or more during the course of the week, that to me was always more instructive than simply the question of, are you an evangelical? Because that's a much more nebulous question. But the the precise matter of how often do you attend church really calls the faithful from the more secular primary voters. And the fact is the Cruz did much better when that question was asked. The regular churchgoers tended to support Ted Cruz. The issue, though, is that the GOP primary electorate is not you know, entirely filled with you know, twice-a-week churchgoers. There's a fairly secular element there. And Trump did extraordinarily well with those kind of voters. And I think that's what ultimately mattered. He really proved that the I think sort of traditional faith-based issues, again, abortion, gay marriage, you know, mattered less to a lot of primary voters than these more questions of identity, of um, you know what it means to be an American. You talk to so many of these Republican leaders, and particularly Republicans of faith. When you talk to them, do they make their reservations about Donald Trump known? How, how do they talk about it? Did they talk about it publicly one way and then privately another? Oh, sure. I mean, privately, they, they know that, that this is problematic and that he is somebody that they would not have preferred. Um, but they might not think that Trump himself is faithful, but they think that Trump will at least defend their kind of, you know, worldview, or at least part of their worldview. You know, one of his favorite lines that I know resonates is the community of Christian voters is, but well, we can't say Merry Christmas anymore. And it's like the perfect Trump issue, right? Because it's him vilifying political correctness and seeming to sort of find common cause with Christian conservatives without himself having to you know, show any overt signs of piety. But that's the kind of thing that, that signals to those voters that, hey, I'm on your side. The thing that Trump did that surprised a lot of us was to talk about faith in a way that felt pretty casual, almost belittling, when he talked about the little wine and the little cracker. Yeah. If he had handled that differently, would it have changed the fundamental math and dynamic of this campaign? When we go in church and, and when I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker, I guess that's a form of asking for forgiveness. I was there when he actually said that in Iowa last year, at event, and I thought it would... Um, come up during the course of the primary, but, you know, the fact that it wasn't used against them kind of suggests um, just how little those kind of issues move primary voters. I don't think it'll have a huge impact. If Hillary is smart and her campaign is smart, you know, I can see them trying to sort of, like, lessen the evangelical ardor for Trump by either putting that kind of a quote in a mail piece or, you know, in a phone call sort of putting that into a certain universe in the final few weeks of the election to kind of tamp down support. I just don't think that that's going to hurt them that much. I mean, that might keep a few people home. I really think that most of those sort of voters will, will come out. What is striking, and um, Pew did some great research on this question, is if you look at Catholics 
and mainline Protestants, you, you know, which, which is more of a kind of moderate element uh, than evangelicals, you see far less support for Trump than you did for Romney four years ago. And I think that's where the, there's the real unease. With Trump. Yes, exactly. Wouldn't it have been really convenient for Donald Trump to have taken his life story with the multiple divorces and some of the excesses and done something quite familiar in the American narrative, which is tell a story of redemption and learned wisdom through trial and error and pain and mistake. That's the way George W. Bush helped account for his wayward years. Yeah. It's a classic American story. <laughs> and and even if it were, it sounds so cynical, but even if it weren't authentic, he could have done it anyway, but he didn't. Yeah, I just think it's simple in the sense that he's not comfortable talking about himself in that fashion. He's not comfortable talking about past mistakes and learning from those mistakes and being introspective. That's just not his style. His style is almost like a pro wrestler, right? I'm the biggest, baddest, richest, smartest, toughest. That's who he's sort of cultivated for the last 40 years in public life. And so for him now to sort of try and do a lot, once was lost, now I'm found type narrative. I just think it would be hard for him to pull that off. Very hard to pull that off. So that's a perfect place for us to pause for a moment, because in fact, there is a version of religion in Donald Trump's life. It's a unique brand of Christianity that helps explain why he's always struggled to admit he's wrong, or to admit really that he's anything other than a tremendous success. Jonathan, we'll say goodbye to you for just a few minutes, and I'll turn now to Gwenda Blair. She's a biographer of the Trump family who's written extensively about the services they attended at Marble Collegiate Church in Manhattan. The head of that church was a charismatic and somewhat controversial pastor named Norman Vincent Peale. Gwenda, thank you for being here. My pleasure. So take us inside the Marble Collegiate Church of the 1970s. Norman Vincent Peale is the minister... And a young Donald Trump is hearing what in the pews from him? Well, Norman Vincent Peale came to really national attention somewhat earlier in 1952 when his book, The Power of Positive Thinking, was published and was an enormous bestseller, both in the U.S. and really around the world. It sold more than 5 million copies. And although Donald was only six years old at the time, so he probably didn't read it, at least not when he was six, his parents were very affected by that. And his parents, who lived in Queens, went to Manhattan to the church. And in the 1970s, when Donald was just beginning to emerge in the real estate business, Norman Vincent Peale was still a presiding minister there. And Donald was married in 1977 in the church. And he would have been hearing Norman Vincent Peale's philosophy which was about success, as the power of positive thinking might suggest, and about the fact that it's not only okay, but it's what God wants you to do. A man can accomplish almost anything, provided he has unlimited enthusiasm. He really said, Norman Vincent Peale, that is, really preached the idea that if you think positively, you really can do anything, move mountains practically, and certainly be a worldly success. He had 10 sort of guidelines for how you would do this. And number one, and I will now quote, is formulate and stamp indelibly on your mind 
a mental picture of yourself as succeeding. Hold this picture tenaciously. Never permit it to fade. Never think of yourself as failing. And I think that this was advice that certainly Donald Trump's father adhered to. He was always a success no matter what happened. And Donald himself has exemplified this throughout his career and certainly in the presidential campaign where whatever he does, it was successful. What strikes me about that quote is that the word God isn't even in it. And it sounds like something you would read in one of the self-help books in the Barnes & Noble aisle, not like a religious theology. Funny thing, I think it is in the self-help aisle nowadays in Barnes & Noble. But yeah, it is very much that. It's believe in yourself. That's the first sentence in the book. Have faith in yourself. Avoid what he called fear thoughts. Don't think of yourself as failing. I don't think this is what most people would imagine as a theology exactly. I don't have the book with me, can't look up in the index how often the word God comes up, but I know it's not much. And he was known as God's salesman, but it was really selling the idea of success. If we think of this philosophy as a blueprint for Trump, where do we see it throughout his career? Since he was a child, hyper-competitive guy, always looking for an edge, always looking for the weakness in someone else. And that kind of endorsement of success, this driving notion of a, a guy who just jumped through the phone when he first came into Manhattan and began to be involved in real estate. That's what people told me. All about success. That's all he was interested in. A 24-7 guy who had no small talk. None at all. They said if it wasn't about business, his eyes glazed over. He had no interest in anything else. It was all about how could he not only succeed, but succeed maximally. How could he get the best possible deal, not just a good deal, but a great deal? And Norman Vince Appeal is about that. And Donald has a number of times, including on the campaign trail, spoken of how much he feels he owes to Norman Vincent Peale. When Norman Vincent Peale was criticized, it was in terms that sound so much like the way people criticize Donald Trump. Let me use some of the words. A con man, a wily salesman, uh, a figure who dumbed things down, made them extremely simple for his audience. Aren't those the same critiques for, for both men? They're remarkably similar. <laughs> and many theologians were very critical of Norman Vincent Peale and said that he was promising something that he couldn't, shouldn't be promised and couldn't be delivered, that if people just focused on success, thought about success night and day, therefore they'd be successful. And this was thought to be not just a con man, but kind of dangerous, that that kind of philosophy uh, was really misleading and that people would end up making very foolish decisions because they would think, well, they were focused on success, therefore they'd achieve it. And he ran into quite a lot of criticism. And I think Donald Trump is running into the same kind of criticism on the campaign trail where he promises success and never you mind how it's going, we're going to get there, never you mind any details, never you mind any plans, he's going to do it, that's it. I have to add that one of Norman Vincent Peale's favorite words, because I was reading through his book, is... Tremendous. That cannot be a coincidence, can it? <laughs> it's very funny, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that sort of super, that taste for superlative. That uh, you're not going to just going to be successful. You're going to be incredibly successful. And Donald Trump, of course, has made famous the idea of superlatives, piled on superlatives, the best of the best of the best of the best. America's going to get tired. It's going to be so successful. Do you think the power of positive thinking, which is clearly so central to Trump? 
would ever allow him to admit that he'd lost a presidential campaign? He, I believe, has a couple of times suggested, well, it's remotely possible, but it would still be a success because it would be such a brand extension for him. And it would be part of his general business success. So even if in the inconceivable notion or the barely conceivable notion that he doesn't win, it would still be a successful campaign as far as he's concerned because it would really be helping out his business. Well, Gwenda, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, I enjoyed it a lot. There's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Jonathan, in our minds, Republican presidential candidates are religious Mm -hmm. and Democrats a little less so. Is that a massive, oversimplified misunderstanding? I think it's not unfair to say that if you look at data, the two parties are moving towards religious and non-religious. There's no question about that, that there are far more secular Democrats than there are secular Republicans. It's a little bit more complicated because you've got African-American and Hispanic Democrats who are fairly devout. But largely, you know, secular whites are now Democrats and more faithful people are, you know, if they're white, they're probably Republicans. I think that's fair. In terms of the presidential nominees, uh, in recent years, you know, John Kerry, Barack Obama, are people who are regular churchgoers uh, or at least people who are outwardly religious. You know, Bill Clinton, somebody who certainly a Southern Baptist and can quote scripture, you know, pretty easily. Uh, I think it's a little bit more complicated there. But, you know, Hillary Clinton is somebody who is a regular churchgoer. She's a, a devout Methodist. And I've always been sort of struck by the contempt among conservative Christians for her, given that she is somebody who is very familiar with, with scripture. Uh, in fact, uh, I was joking with a conservative Christian friend of mine if you look at the four candidates on the two tickets this year, Kim Kane, Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, this might be the most devout ticket, all told, that we've had in at least 16 years. 
when you had Gore, who was a, fourth, a former divinity student, with Joe Lieberman, Orthodox Jew, running against George W. Bush, born-again Christian, and Dick Cheney. Obviously, Trump is the exception to that, but this ticket is, is, is largely very religious. And yet, we're not talking about their faith. And that brings us, of course, to the great Hillary Clinton question, which is, if you've got it, flaunt it, right? She's got religion baked deeply into her life and her life story, so why doesn't she make it more of a focal point? Well, her campaign is sophisticated enough that as this campaign, as this election wears on, I think you're going to see targeted effort by her to you know, remind certain voters of her, her faith. There have been times on the campaign trail where she has purposefully invoked her faith and her church. I have no doubt that we'll see that again at certain times and in certain places. Keep in mind, at the Democratic Convention, there was one night where there was imagery of her praying with uh, African Americans, um, a video that I recall of black pastors laying hands on her and praying over her. You don't typically see that at a Democratic convention uh, in the modern era, and I think that was very much intentional. Can you be too religious for the Democratic Party? It depends uh, is the easy answer. Uh, the harder answer, uh, or, or the more complex answer, is if you are talking about faith in a way that is inclusive and that is rooted in sort of gospel of you know Christ and you know helping the least of these, then I think it's not going to hurt you in a Democratic primary. It just It's a matter of how it shapes your views on policy issues, right? Could a anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, conservative, you know, culturally conservative Christian win a Democratic primary? Hard to see, you know, hard to see. Could somebody who was a Democrat but a regular churchgoer and was capable of quoting scripture from memory, but had more progressive cultural views when, yeah, sure, and they have. You know, that's Bill Clinton. That's Hillary Clinton. So I think it just depends upon how their faith informs their view on today's policy issues. I mean, especially, you know, white Democrats, uh, especially are, you know, fine seeing the most devout, pious, you know, black Democrats in the world preaching. It's just part of their coalition. And as long as it doesn't sort of, you know, impede on the party's, you know, liberal orthodoxy. I just don't think it's, it, would be a, it would be a problem in the primary. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Jonathan talked about that image at the convention of Hillary Clinton praying. And he's right. We don't see that image a lot. But a little reporting shows that her faith, like Trump's, is actually essential to who Hillary Clinton is. In a way that I think might come as a surprise to many people who of course feel like they know her so well after all these decades in public life. Would you be surprised to hear, for example, that Hillary Clinton's been known to carry a Bible with her in her purse, or that she receives short Bible verses, devotionals, from her religious advisor every day, or that she says things like this. The most important commandment is to love the Lord with all your might and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is what I think we are commanded by Christ to do. So we called somebody who knows Hillary Clinton as a religious person because he's prayed with her, Bernd Strider. He was Hillary Clinton's religious advisor during her 2008 presidential campaign, and he remains a friend of hers today. Burns, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I am excited to be on with y'all. So I'm struck by this number that I've seen in a Pew 
research report, which is that 43% of Americans don't think that Hillary Clinton is religious. And of course, you know better. That's a perception, not necessarily a reality. But why is there such a disconnect between her faith and our awareness of it? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't want to get into all the attacks over the years and the conspiracies and stuff like that. I'm not interested in talking about that. But, you know, that has played a role. You know, it's been fostered by political entities opposed to her. As Republicans were scheming and pushing on ways to make her a bad person, that certainly a little bit of um, challenging her faith came into that. When we talk about religion, there are two kinds of religious people. There are those who talk about it and make it a central part of their identity, and then there are quieter versions of a religious person who keep it very personal. Does that distinction help us think about why people don't understand Hillary Clinton as a person of faith? Yeah, that helps. That's another big part of answering your question. I mean, I'm like President Clinton. You know, I'm a Baptist. We talk. We have things to say about our religion. And, you know, you step into Hillary's world of Methodism, where it's a much more disciplined affair. And St. Francis, even though he wasn't Methodist, But when he said, preach all the time, but sometimes use words, that's very much Hillary, because she believes that actions are more important than words and that you'll be known by your fruits, as the Bible says, and she believes her fruits are are showcased in what she does and in her actions. So, you know, I'll admit this, sometimes it's a little hard to get her just to kind of talk directly from a Christian point of view because that's not what she was brought up to believe. Well, what, what was she brought up to believe about how discreet or public you should be in your faith? She was quite the Methodist. She was brought up in Methodist church, confirmed when she was 12. And um, Methodism was a very American endeavor. You know, it was like rotary clubs and Chevrolets and people waving flags and loving their country, as well as having a hard or a strict type of disciplines into how they study and learn and practice their faith. And I think that she bought into all of it, if that's a fair way to say it. Some theologian may correct me, but I think that she did. And I think you see it in her all the time. It started back then, you know, when the president said the Russians are going to beat us unless we have more scientists. We need you to study science. Then she was off learning science. She was going to be a scientist, wanted to be an astronaut. When her youth minister took her and her class into downtown Chicago to hear Dr. King's speech, it changed her. Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, it changed her. It certainly is a faith, a denomination that teaches and pushes really hard on letting your actions speak for you. And therefore, 
do good things. I want to talk about Hillary Clinton's faith because you've seen it up close, not just as a campaign advisor in 2008, but as somebody who prayed with her and processed religion and scripture with her. So let's walk through the religious regimen of Hillary Clinton's life and kind of describe it to our listeners as you see. Yeah, well, you know, Hillary wakes up early in the morning. She has her own reading time, devotion time, and prayer time. She spends her day waiting for and anticipating grace notes, you know, special moments, out meeting someone new on the rope line, you know, who knows where. But she recognizes them and considers them a blessing. And there'll be a point in a day where a shared reflection will pop up from me. And we talk about a sundry of things, largely scripture. But we love Henri Nouwen. We love Thomas Merton. There's so many Christian writers we love. So we do that. She um, likes to have ministers backstage at her events. If you have 10 events a day, she may meet 20 ministers because there will be a couple backstage at all of her events that have been invited. And meeting with them always ends in prayer. It feels like there's an inherent tension for a Democrat when they talk about faith to make sure that they don't talk too much about faith because there is a part of the Democratic Party that cares about religion, and there's a part of the Democratic Party that's significantly secular. And I wonder how she navigated that and what kind of advice you've given to her about how to do that. Well, I mean, Democratic Party and those in it who are uncomfortable with faith, they're largely uncomfortable with it because of the religious right. I've believed for years that the Christian right was actually hanging a noose around the neck of the church. And and another thing, another really important thing is that if you're honest and if you're passionate, most folks aren't going to freak over the fact that your center comes from a relationship with God. They're going to respect you for being honest and passionate about it. And I think Hillary herself, I think she has more than enough um, leeway to talk about faith if she wants to. And, you know, we get to imagine this time having some actual evangelical support, which we do, um, in the form of some megachurch leaders and in the form of many rank and file across the board. Do you wish that Hillary Clinton would be more vocal, more expansive about her religion, about her personal faith? Um, Yeah, I like it when she is. And I like it because when she is, she's very authentic. She's extremely authentic in talking about it because it's very real to her and it's real in her life. So I I think it's good for her when she does. And she chooses not to a lot, and I respect that. But she's awfully good when she does it because she's not playing. Burns, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Man, it was a treat. I enjoyed talking to you. And holler back anytime. So in an election year when the candidates aren't talking much about their faith, 
It turns out that their faith explains a whole lot about who they are and how they behave. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you back here on Tuesday. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc.